much. Yeah, I want to introduce Hillary. Hillary's a member of our missions committee here at ECC, and I really appreciate all the time and energy she has put into organizing this conference. And I know she just has a real heart for the work that IJM is doing, so I'd love it if you could just share um, a little bit about Joe, our speaker. Sure, Thank thanks. You. So uh, Joe most recently comes to us from Washington, D.C., but um, he's been involved in churches in North Carolina, um, Colorado Springs, and San Diego. He got his uh, B.S. for Business Administration at the University of Colorado in Boulder and his Master's of Divinity from uh, Gordon-Conwell in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, he is at International Justice Mission, the Director of Church Mobilization in the Northeast region. So if you are inspired today um, and you want yes. to talk with him when you are afterwards, as now, even now, as you're inspired, um, he's the perfect person to talk with about how you can get involved more or if you think your home churches would be interested in getting involved, he's the perfect person to talk with you about that. Um, I can't resist to tell a story, so I'm going to tell a really short story because I saw this at the International Justice Mission Facebook page this morning. And uh, if you haven't yet, go on there and follow it. They have a lot of just amazing information um, and stories. And the story is there's six children in Washington State that heard about the slavery that's happening in Ghana right now with the fish boys and wanted to get involved themselves and came up with an idea of creating a video. And the video was to teach other children what's happening to give them information and empower them as well. So it's very child-friendly, a lot of the gory details left out, but it shows what's happening and enlightens them and they decide to make a fundraiser out of it. And they've raised $1,400 just from this video, these six children. Um, from Washington State. And go to the IGM Facebook page, you can actually read the story and watch the video. It's really good video, it's adorable. Um, but say that to, to say, these six children, look what they've done so far. It's amazing and really motivating to think what you or I or a group of friends could do just on our own. Um, so, without further ado, uh, Joseph has been very enlightening and inspiring um, in his talks last night and this morning. I've enjoyed them. So, Joseph Brown. Thanks so much. This, uh, this is fun to be able to stick around. Often they, like, I'll do the Sunday morning thing and then they just sort of pack me up on a plane and send me off to the next thing. And so it's a privilege to be invited to stick around to talk to you all. Um, I did do college ministry in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, for about seven years with students at Wake Forest University um, and had a blast. It was some of my most fun, uh, maybe up until now. Um, those seven years in college ministry were just dynamic and great. So um, I'm, I know the job that Josiah gets to do, and, and uh, I like it. It's a good job, and I'm thankful that there's a church this close to a college campus that says, you know what, you all matter. And so whatever it takes, we're going to be a church that is welcoming and, uh, to the university, that is present with you on the campus, that is engaged in the life that uh, you all are living there and the struggles that you're facing, and uh, they're not going to, uh, you know, just criticize the university life, but instead enter into it and engage it. So I'm really thankful uh, that there's a church nearby that you all can be a part of. Uh, so Josiah said I could share a little bit about myself uh, as I share with you tonight, uh, and I'm going to do that just by giving you one tiny little glimpse into my life. I've got uh, a great wife who's a marriage and family therapist and also does play therapy with children. So she's pretty much the perfect person to be married to. Because she always makes sure that we have a really healthy marriage, and she won't settle for anything less, and she always makes sure that our kids are well-adjusted, I think. 
Uh, she's the expert, so I defer to her on these things. Uh, but uh, I've got so four kids now. They're ages 10, 8, 6, and 4 months. Uh, so yes, the four-month-old is a surprise. Uh, we weren't planning on that. Uh, little babies is kind of a young man's game. I'm not a young man anymore. <laughs> So struggling to keep up with him, but the older ones have really jumped in on this. And so the, the little glimpse I want to give you is actually to my oldest son, Gabe. Uh, so here, what would you say? Right here where we are now is the biggest, most important sport that people play. Basketball. Uh, of course. Right? It's Hoosier country. There's only one movie that's ever been called Hoosiers. Okay? It's on basketball. Uh, well, what would you guess is the number one sport in northern Virginia, where we live? Lacrosse. I've never played lacrosse. I barely know how to play it now. And so, so Gabe, my oldest son, has gotten into the culture of Northern Virginia and he started to play lacrosse. So we had a game this afternoon. The regular lacrosse season is in the spring. And they do a full field. Uh, it's like you know nine fifth graders you know running all over the place trying to throw and catch a little ball with a stick and a net on it. Um, but in the winter, this fall season, they play like a what they call box lacrosse on like a little, it's like a hockey size arena. Uh, so it's a lot quicker, it's a lot faster, there's a lot more goals. And um, every game up until last week, they'd lost by the score of like 18 to 3. They were getting completely blown out. And then last week, I don't know what happened, but last week they won 18 to 2. So like something just flipped over. So they had a game today, this afternoon. Uh, and I said, so how did the game end? Uh, and the reply from my wife, 16 to 4. My response, how did Gabe play? Long time passes. So I figured that, you know, maybe they've got home. Maybe she's preparing dinner for the kids. You know, maybe they're watching football. And then finally the response comes. Great! With four exclamation points. He didn't score, but he played amazing defense. That's really good. Like, this is something I've been working with him on. And then five minutes later, FYI, Gabe wrote that. <laughs> so that's my oldest, who's taking my wife's phone and texting me a message about his game. And somehow I'm supposed to figure out how to parent that child, uh, <laughs> who's tricking me. And I wrote back, that's funny, because it is. So just a little insight to, to my life and what I, I come here thinking about a little bit um, is sort of just that um, witty, playful way of engaging life. Uh, so, you're a university crowd. I want to start with a little history lesson tonight. Cool? Uh, if there's any picture that comes up, um, you're probably not going to know who it is. I mean, you can read his name. <laughs> or you can say, oh, that's Thomas Clarkson, and I'd be super impressed. But anyone know why I'd show a picture of Thomas Clarkson? Any guesses? Some of you who are witty and creative might say, oh, because he's a famous Brit. Because there's a little pin mark in the center of this United Kingdom map. You'd be like, oh yeah, that, that would be good. So in May of 1787, Clarkson and 11 other men set up a little organization called the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade. And these 12 men were the ones who actually persuaded a man named William Wilberforce. You've all heard that name, right? They were the ones who persuaded Wilberforce to speak for them in Parliament. 
Clarkson's first task to persuade the people of the United Kingdom that ending slavery was important was to gather as much evidence and to prove how badly slaves were treated. And so Clarkson, during his life, rode a horse 35,000 miles in circles around Britain, observing, finding witnesses, interviewing, speaking, making notes, assembling evidence, all of this about the evils of the slave trade. So to engage with the public, he would travel on horseback from city to city, he'd meet with city officials, he'd give talks in public, and he'd take out props like leg irons and thumb screws that he had brought to uh, his home, and he'd show them all these contents of what he called his Africa box to demonstrate the evils of slavery and to suggest that there was a different way. And all of this he would gather and do, and as he did all of this, he'd have anybody in Britain who wanted to end slavery sign their name on a scroll. So the scroll got huge, and any time Wilberforce would get up to make a speech at Parliament, Clarkson would show up with the scroll. So that Wilberforce could stand before them and say, look at all the people in our country who want to end slavery. But you've never heard of Thomas Clarkson. Let me show you another picture. Anyone know who that guy is? Oh, so John Nicolay, right? So you can read that. Any idea what he might be famous for? There's a hint up there. So who's he sitting with in this picture? Abraham Lincoln. It's a pretty important guy. So any guess what might be on this piece of paper? A speech. It's a good guess. Any particular guess on which speech? It starts with these words, four score and seven years ago. Our forefathers brought forth on this continent. So, any guesses? Gettysburg Address. Now, there's a lot of uncertainty and mystery that surrounds the authoring of the Gettysburg Address. There are only five known copies, handwritten copies of the Gettysburg Address in existence. Most of them believe they're copies that were written after the speech. Except for this curious one, which the first page is written, handwritten, uh, by in Lincoln's uh, writing on what uh, appears to be a piece of stationery from the White House. The second piece of paper is kind of more like a scrap paper, maybe even the back of an envelope where the end of the speech was written. Now, one of the most famous speeches, perhaps in the history of the world, certainly in our country, uh, Lincoln didn't most likely write the first page of the speech. Most Lincoln scholars believe it was his primary speechwriter, John Nicolay, who drafted the first page of the Gettysburg Address. It's believed that, that Lincoln worked on this first draft uh, in, with Nicolay at the White House, and then they took a train uh, from Washington up to Gettysburg. And then on the train, Lincoln wrote the remainder with Nicolay advising him. And then when they got off the train, Lincoln didn't want to forget his speech, and so he handed it to Nicolay. And Nicolay's only job was to show up on November 18th, 1863, with the speech in his pocket. 
So before Lincoln stepped up to deliver the Gettysburg Address, John Nicolay would take out the speech and hand him the Gettysburg Address. Now, you, you've never heard of John Nicolay, I don't know. So what do these two men have in common? One, you've never heard of either of them before tonight. Two, both of them did their part to end slavery. And very few people know them for it. See, sometimes people who do really, really important work for the sake of justice don't get named, don't get remembered, don't get credit. But if we're actually going to end slavery in our generation, in your lifetime, it's going to take thousands of John Nicolays and thousands of Thomas Clarksons to do the tedious, risky, hard work of justice. There are 30 million slaves in the world today, and it's an entirely preventable problem. Countless people will need to be involved and be willing to go unnamed and forgotten for their contributions by all but God. See, justice is God's work. Justice is the very thing that God calls us to do. And I honestly only first began discovering this about four or five years ago, when I was leading and shepherding and being part of a team that was involved with college and young adult students at First Presbyterian Church in Colorado Springs. There were a few leaders in that young adult community who just felt like this issue of human trafficking was starting to become a word that people needed to know about. Now, four or five years later, there's almost no one who hasn't at least heard the words human trafficking. Lots of people maybe still don't understand what it means. But we know something about slavery and forcing people and sex trade and some things around those vocabulary words. I can sort that out for you later if you're interested. But this group of leaders felt like they needed to start doing something to raise awareness about the reality of modern-day slavery and the horror of it that is, exists in our day and our world. So they, they didn't know what to do. So they said, well, can we just start doing these nights of awareness where we just put up flyers and invite the whole community uh, to come to this coffee shop that our church had started. And so we did. And people started showing up and hearing about the reality of human trafficking and modern-day slavery. And the only response that we could figure out to do after telling people all of these crushing statistics and overwhelming them with uh, the issues in the world was to simply pray. We just didn't know what to do, so we began to pray, and we paired that then with worship. Because this is God's work, and the only one who can really help us do something about it is God. And so we started doing these on the nights, and then this community began to get hungry for more of what the scripture says about how God feels, what's God's heart for justice. How, what does God really feel about the poor, and the slave, and the vulnerable, and the oppressed? So we began to study God's heart for justice, and we looked at scriptures like Micah 6.8, uh, one of the most common ones. Um, we'll see it coming up. He has shown you, oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And other scriptures like Isaiah 1, 17, a great text about uh, the people of Israel wanting to get God's attention and be with him and doing all these things, but missing the point about what God wanted them to be about. And so 1, 17, he says to them, what, to seek justice, here's what I want you to do, seek justice. Rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead 
for the widow. These are the kind of things that matter to God, what God's heart is about. So I began teaching uh, about these on Sunday mornings in, in a community of about this size, college students and young adults. But I'll be honest, it still was something I was just teaching. Still something I was just giving head knowledge to. And then one night, uh, in the midst of all of this teaching, um, I went to bed, and I'm not a person who usually remembers dreams. But one night, I have this crazy dream. And so I'm being interviewed. And there's no, no people, there's nothing in the dream. There's just a, a picture of a scale. And one of those balancing scales. You can see a picture of it. It will come up. And, and I'm being interviewed. I'm asking questions like, uh, the voice is saying to me, um, how much time have you spent um, like planning sermons and messages? And a weight went down. Uh, how much time have you spent um, singing really moving worship songs? And another weight went down. And how much time have you spent planning and attending retreats? And, and a weight went down. And how much time have you spent planning and going on short-term mission trips? And another weight went down. And there's all these weights were going down on one side. And then the line of questioning shifted. And it was, how much time have you spent doing justice? There was no way. How much time have you spent loving mercy? Well, I love mercy for myself. I think it's a great thing for me. So a little way with that. How much time have you spent walking humbly with God? I'm like the second most humble person I know. <laughs> so all this line of questioning how much time have you spent um, caring about the poor how much time have you spent uh, speaking on behalf of the widow and uh, loving the orphan and all those questions and there's hardly any weight going down so at the end of it I'm looking at this really unbalanced scale and I wake up from that and I'm like in the morning like, I had a really vivid dream last night and it was really just kind of different. And let me tell you, so I'm, I'm an educated Presbyterian pastor. So like, think of some of the stereotypes you have about Presbyterians and seminarians. I mean, pretty logical and like cold. And so my tradition has a nickname in the, in the Christendom, the world of the church, just the frozen chosen. Okay? <laughs> so I have been drilled into me that you doubt things like dreams. Because dreams are, could be part of our twisted and broken psyche, and so it could be our own minds or sin playing tricks on us. And so I wake up with this really vivid dream, and I'm like, huh, what was that about? So I, I talk with a few trusted people about it. I mention it to my wife, and she goes, oh, uh, yeah, that is kind of an interesting dream. Uh, a few other people, a few mentors, I'm like, is there anything in this? And then that week, not kidding, no joke, that very week after the dream, I'm reading Matthew 23, 23. And if you were here this morning, I mentioned it really quickly. Matthew 23, 23 is in the context of Jesus teaching uh, to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious elite of his day. And he's giving them a whole bunch of warnings, things to be careful for if you're a religious person, a follower of God. And in Matthew 23, 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. For you have tithed your mint and your dill and your kin. In other words, like you've sung good songs and you've prepared good messages and you've gone on good retreats. Like you've done good things. 
but you've neglected, the NIV translation says, the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith. Better that you had done both than done one and neglect the other. And all of a sudden that dream for me blew up. Because I realized that I've been living the very warning that Jesus had given the Pharisees. That hurts. When you read something that Jesus says, don't do that, and you realize, oh, shoot, I've been doing that. See, weighty matters are actually risky things to get involved in. And so what happens is so much of our time is spent thinking about like how we prepare for our future. How do you set yourselves up for a good track that will lead to security and safety and provision? Weighty matters are just risky things to get involved. Justice and mercy and humility. I mean, these go against our cultural values of safety and comfort. So consider for a moment, if you will, a truly American invention. The cul-de-sac. Anybody here raised on a cul-de-sac? Okay. Oh, wow. Congratulations that you have survived. For those that don't know what a cul-de-sac is, it's one of those things. It's a dead-end street with a circle on the end of it. It's surrounded by houses. Now, Americans began to invent this, uh, develop this in suburbs. And the rationale was to eliminate dangerous high-speed traffic. You know, as suburbs began to explode in the, in the 1940s, as all these soldiers were coming back from war, uh, like all of a sudden cars were driving faster and there's more traffic and people were like, we've got to protect the kids. The concern was for children playing out in the street. So looking for safety, developers began to design these rounded dead ends. Turns out, children are hurt far less from dangerous forward-moving traffic as they are by cars backing up slowly. Isn't that interesting? See, if you're driving a car and a kid runs out in the street and you're going forward, you're probably going to see that kid and have a reaction time to swerve. But if you're backing up and you're looking in your mirrors and then all of a sudden a kid runs behind you, because you're looking backwards, you're just as likely to press the gas pedal as the brake. So, Contrary to our intuitions to create better, safer streets, we actually made something more dangerous for children. So you who grew up on cul-de-sacs, congratulations for making it out alive. It says a lot about you. So now, cul-de-sacs have become so dangerous, there are some cities that are now seeking to develop cul-de-sacs in new developments. Isn't that crazy? Like there might be a time we see no more cul-de-sacs because there's... They're more unsafe than straight driving streets. What if the things that we've designed to keep us safe are actually injuring or even killing us? And a lot of what we have learned growing up in the church, despite your generation's instincts to do justice, a lot of what's been padded around you, and, and not necessarily saying here at ECC, and maybe you came from a really great church, but a lot of the things that culture pushes onto us that's often affirmed through our faith are designed to insulate and protect and keep us safe. So it's possible. It's at least worth considering that if your faith doesn't have some element of risk, you might be too safe. 
This is even true in the announcement for something like Veritas. Like, we really need some people who are willing to stand out and take a risk. Like, stand in a place where you might be identified as a Christian and then have to actually talk to somebody about it. That feels risky. But if your faith doesn't have any element of risk, I would suggest you might be too safe. Now, I'm not suggesting recklessness. Don't go play in the street and intentionally get hit by a car and say, that's what the IJM guy said to do, so I must be living like a life of faith now. But I am suggesting some way, somewhere, somehow, your faith needs to be seasoned with risk. So I want to tell you an example, like how do you do that then? How do you actually give your life away to do something for the vulnerable, for the oppressed, uh, for the enslaved, for victims of injustice in the world. I'm going to give you two ways. One way that will be like crazy out there, and one way that will be something really simple you could think about doing this spring. So one of the things I've been able to do that I've been really privileged and honored is to go and visit some of our work in our IJM field offices. And I visited our office in Cambodia. And 10 or 15 years ago, if you had gone to Cambodia, uh, you could have walked down the street uh, in a community like Siem Reap, and literally minor girls, girls under 16 years old, would have been standing there, and you could have walked up and bought them like a cow. They were just out there for sale. Today, if you go to Cambodia, it would be very, very difficult for you to find a minor girl available for sale. The laws have been strengthened, the police have done their work, traffickers have gone to jail. And now we believe less than 2% of the women in the sex industry in Cambodia are actually minors. It's a huge, huge success. But 10 years ago, a woman from Australia went up to see this work and met with IJM and was like, so moved by the, des the despair of these girls who were being rescued uh, out of sex trafficking. And just was like, what can I do? She said, I'm a baker. Like, I own a cupcake, wedding cake, bakery in Australia. What could I possibly do for these girls? So she went back to Australia. She prayed about it. And God actually gave her a vision and an idea. So she moved to Cambodia. And she opened Bloom Cafe. Now, if you go into Bloom Cafe, you have no idea that all of the girls who work there have been rescued. In fact, if you ever go to Bloom Cafe, I ask that you don't make that statement at all. Because primary customers at Bloom Cafe are the Cambodian royalty. And they don't even know. In fact, if they did know, they wouldn't come to Bloom Cafe to buy the incredible cakes that Bloom makes. So if you ever watch a show like Ace of Cakes or any of that kind of stuff, like that's what Bloom Cafe does. On an incredible level. So next picture. Just build it. So on the bottom, you can see a picture of some of their samples, some of the cakes that they've made. And, I mean, they're like things you see on TV. Now, like, here's the amazing thing about Cambodia. Cambodians don't like cake. They don't eat cake. But the Cambodian royal family comes to Bloom Cafe, and if you're going to have an event, a birthday, a wedding, anything, and you want to be significant, you buy a Bloom Cafe cake. How cool is that? 
So I, I was there. I didn't need a cake. So I just ordered a latte. That's a picture of my latte. I had to sit there and wait for it to get cold because I couldn't drink the art that was in front of me. <laughs> so she left everything of the security of her home, the comfort of a successful bakery, packed it all up, moved to Cambodia and started this. She now, in uh, uh, Phnom Penh, employs almost 50 girls. They do cakes, they do the cafe, they do gift cards, uh, and they do one other form of um, sustainable businesses. It's become so successful that the Cambodian government has asked her to open a second cafe in another city. I mean, she has put it all on the line. She's doing her part for justice in the world. She's taking things that were broken and ruined, and she's turning them into life and beauty. This is the kind of work that fighting injustice, ending slavery, doing justice in the world today needs people who are willing to put themselves out there like that. Who are willing to actually just stand up and take a risk. And so that's the second thing is that you could do. Sometime this spring, and the past two years, our college mobilization team at IJM has organized an event called Stand for Freedom. Did they have one at IU last year? No, they did. I don't believe they had a Stand for Freedom. So this is what college, uh, IJM college chapters around the country do. You go to our website, a few of you who decide, I want to be a part in ending things like slavery in the world today. You sign up and you become an IJM chapter, and then you mobilize a bunch of people and you stand on campus, one location, for 24 hours straight. And you can do it as shifts. There have been a couple of crazy kids who have done the whole 24-hour shift. Uh, you raise some money on the side and you sign a petition uh, for advocacy purposes. And you actually, in a small way, begin this ripple effect that makes a huge difference in the long run for victims of injustice. So my invitation, my, my ask for you all tonight is to, to be thinking creatively. To be thinking in a way that you're seasoned with risk. That you really ask yourself good questions about your faith and say, and what, and what I'm doing and what I'm pursuing, is it about keeping me safe? Is it about setting me up for success? Or am I letting something in my life be seasoned with God's call to do justice? As you're kind of thinking about that a little bit, I'm going to show one video, uh, one of my favorite stories, uh, a story about a girl named Griselda. And this is from our office in Guatemala. I'm going to share my story. 
se bajó un hombre, me tomó muy fuerte y me subió el carro. En ese momento es algo, algo terrible, lo primero que uno dice es, me la van a matar. Los tres empezaron a, a discutir por, por quién de los tres iba a ser el, el primero en abusar de mí. Me sentía muy, muy sola, también no te debería decir, somos ya culpables de lo que me ha sucedido. Era un miedo bastante, bastante grande. No quería no salir a la, a la calle porque sabía que para mí eran hombres y pensaba que todos iban a mí y querían abusar nuevamente de mí. Sexual trauma no se cura solo, necesita apropiada terapia, así como creemos en mantener al perpetrador accountable. Zelda and our social worker, who's been walking the whole time through this journey with her. 
fact, now that she's 19, she's able to come forward and we don't have to hide her name. Griselda is a pseudonym that we gave her when she was still a minor. But Grindy came forward and shared her story in front of 1,200 people. People wept. And people cried out to God, thanks. We worshiped God and we prayed that more girls like Grindy would be rescued. Now, injustice isn't just something that happens in Guatemala and India and Kenya and Cambodia. There are issues of injustice across the street. There are issues of violence. There are issues of, uh, related to physical violence, sexual violence, all kinds of things that are right here in your community. And what you're able to do is give voice to the ones who don't have voice. If you choose to live a risky faith and do justice. May I pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this community, for this church, for your heart for justice. Thank you so much for people like Green and that video of Rosella's story. We can see that, and I do pray, God, that uh, you would be continuing to work in this generation you'd be raising up. Um, that there'd be a day in faith where doing justice was just an ordinary part of what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. Thank you for the work you've already done and the way that the church around the world is responding to your heart for justice. Clearly, God, it's a move of your Holy Spirit that you're doing in us and that you're doing in the rest of your kingdom. So we pray that the conversations tonight, even at dinner, would just be fruitful and wonderful and we'd be able to really worship you because we know you are God who's good and you want good things for your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand?